This is the New Canaan Society podcast for the Franklin, Tennessee chapter. We are a group of men who gather together to encourage each other in friendship and in faith, and to support each other to be better husbands, fathers, and better men in the marketplace and in our communities. Friendship at NCS happens through our regular meetings in local chapters all across the country. The Franklin, Tennessee chapter meets the first and third Thursday each month at Puckett's Grocery and Restaurant in downtown Franklin from 7 to 8 a.m. This podcast is sponsored by Harrington Interactive Media. Working on a book? Let us help you get it to print. We can edit your book, design the cover, and help you list it on Amazon's print-on-demand services. See examples of our work and connect with us at harringtoninteractive.com. In this episode, Paul Young shares a talk called Being Brothers in Life. It was recorded on November 29th, 2012. Welcome to the New Canaan Society. Uh, We're just a group of guys who believe that uh, friendship with Jesus and his friends is probably one of the most essential things in life. Uh, This is designed for you, brothers around tables, around food, uh, to enter into this place that Jesus invites us to where we get to participate in the life of our brothers. And most of us uh, have been through all kinds of times that are, that are lonely times for men, lonely places. Um, over dinner last night, uh, talking about the tough years that no one told us about. No one explained things were going to get this tough this quick. A lot of guys coming out of college today are, are uh, absolutely uh, amazed at how quickly life turns hard and difficult. And so this is a context in which we begin to address some of these issues. Um, We never expected our life at this point to fall apart or to have this kind of sorrow. And um, I'm convinced that we are not meant to live life alone. We cannot do it. It is, it is, it is meant for us to be shared. Um, the, the, the royalty, the beauty, the majesty of life uh, is in relationships. And, and uh, this morning we have such a wonderful, wonderful uh, brother with us this morning, two wonderful brothers. I'll introduce them in a minute. Um, I hold in my hand a copy of a book called The Shack Revisited that has just been released here in the United States in October. Um, our friend Baxter Kruger, who is, um, he's a theologian and doctor of philosophy uh, and a fishing lore <clears throat> inventor, uh, which is, makes no sense to guys who don't know that fishing lures and philosophy kind of go together. Uh, Baxter's here with us this morning, and Baxter was a, a, one of our speakers about a year ago. Highly, highly recommend this book. Um, and, and there's a little bit of, um, uh, when we talk about relationship, there's, a, there's a, a little bit of a trinity of relationships going on with this dear brother, um, uh, Paul Young. And who, who discovered Baxter somehow, and then, then uh, Paul introduced me to Baxter. Um, what, what we know happened with the shack was something very dynamic and very unusual that was surprising to most of us. And that was that we were reminded that the affection of our Father and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was much greater than we knew. And, and um, Paul, thank you for that. Thank you for that reminder and just... This is yours, brother. So the theme this morning uh, is going to be being brothers in life sort of thing. I never have a theme, so uh, I thought I'd make up one for today about 30 seconds ago. So Baxter, come on up here, and uh, I'm going to have Baxter share with you how we connected, and then I'm going to tell you a couple stories about what what learning to not live in, in uh, isolation has meant for me. 
because I'm a religious kid, right? Missionary kid, preacher's kid, which meant I had further to go. And, uh, and, and, and we're skilled, missionary kid and preacher's kids, we're, we're skilled at hiding. I, I don't know if you knew that, but it's kind of like our thing. And uh, so learning to open up is like, is the same thing for us as learning to trust. And trust is the big journey for us. We'd much rather have religion where it's about learning to please, right? Because learning to please is a lot easier. You just have to know what the rules are, you know, and then you can just do the rules and you're in. But learning to trust means you have to actually know somebody, you know. So when God is about learning to please God, doesn't really matter who God is. It can be any God as long as you know what your rules are. And then you'll not only know if you're doing okay, which you're usually not. Too many of us are too broken to do the rules very well. So that's when we learn to hide. Huh? And, um, and so, you know, you have all these different gods, but they all have different rules. And even inside Christianity, you got a bunch of different gods with different rules. And, uh, or you can tell that they're different gods because there are different rules. And so you can be in one place and have a certain set of rules, another place have a different set of rules because you know, really the God is either a little angrier over here, a little more disappointed over here. And, um, and so, uh, but we spend our lives trying to please God. The journey is learning how to trust God. And that is about God because you cannot trust somebody that you don't know loves you. You can't. You know, you can say you do because that's what religion will teach you how to do. Here are the words. Use the words. doesn't matter if it's really true or not. See, just another form of hiding. So the learning to trust thing is the big journey. And part of that is that we're designed to be in relationship one with another. Kind of bad news, you know, because a lot of us would much rather have the control that comes from isolation or the sense of control that comes from isolation until our world falls apart. And then out of desperation, we'll begin to open up our hearts to other people and to God even. So I just wanted to t uh, have Baxter share with you how he and I connected. Great story. And uh, it's led to a, a, a deepening and rich and graceful relationship for me. A true story. Um, in October 2007, I think... Um, Wendy Marchant of Sault Ste. Marie, Canada, rang me on the phone and she said, uh, Baxter, I'm not getting off the phone. Do you promise me you'll read, read a book? And I said, Wendy, Wendy, I read books all the time. I know I'm from Mississippi, but we, we read down here. <laughs> some, some of us can write. She said, no, no, it's a book called The Shack. And I said, well, what's it about? And she said, I'm not going to tell you. Because if I tell you to ruin it for you, you just have to trust me. I said, Wendy, and this lady prays for me and my family all the time, so I think, okay, okay. Deer season's coming up, and I have this stand that we built called the Cadillac stand, which has a roof and, and, and uh, really, really comfortable, like, banker's chairs <laughs> and carpet, and you walk into it. Um, you can tell what kind of hunter I am. Anyway, I said, deer season's coming up. I will put it on the top of my deer stand reading pile. So I did first day I'm sitting there I got my feet propped up you know and, and I'm reading and I'm getting like whoa dude what this man wait a minute I mean it started out good because he's in the woods and he, I'm thinking maybe he stumbled on the 
you know, some kind of, um, and anyway, I'm, I'm thinking, this, what's going on? And all of a sudden, Missy, and then she, I'm like, man, you have got to be kidding me. So I stood up in my little deer stand at Cadillac, and I held this book in my hand. I said, I said, William P. Young, I don't know who the, you are, but if you hand me as the answer to this gut-wrenching trauma, the same old, same old distant God who's up there watching us from the infinite distance of an already disapproving heart. If you hand me that right now as the answer to this, I'm going to take your little book and I'm going to walk 200 yards down the path and gently lean it against the tree and then personally eliminate this copy from the cosmos. <laughs> I kid you not. So then I turned and out comes Papa in chapter 5 of, and I'm like, Holy moly, who is this guy? This is the this is the voice of the early church. I'm a trained theologian. That's I'm thinking this this guy's talk about what Athanasius is talking about. And I couldn't, I just kept reading, 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 and I, and I thought, I gotta finish this book. So I had the flashlight in my mouth, it was getting dark, and I was trying to finish. And my son called me, texted me, and says, I'm at the base camp, Dad. Come on. So I went home, went, went, picked him up, and we drove home, and I finished the book that night. That was a Friday. I think it was Sunday, two days later. It may have been the following week. I'm watching uh, Sunday afternoon. My son and I are watching Eli Manning and the New York football giants. I'm an old Miss fan, by the way. Uh, well, finally, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, we get one out of every 30 years, <laughs> kind of. Um, anyway, I was watching Eli, and the phone rings. My cell phone rings, and I looked at it, and it's a 503 number, and I'm like, I I don't know a 503 area code. And I was trying to, you know, go mute it. And I asked my son where it was from. He said, I don't know. And anyway, I took the call and I answered. I said, this is Baxter. And voice on the other says, Baxter, this is Paul Young. I'm like, okay, okay. I don't know a Paul Young. It's William P. Young on the front of the book. So I, you know, and you don't really pay attention anyway when you, you know, you you kind of have to read the book two or three times for you anyway. So I'm thinking, okay, well, Paul, um, we're trying to figure out where we met. And he knew that I didn't know who he was, and he was enjoying it. Um, and so we started talking, and I'm racking my brain thinking, where in the world did I meet Paul Young? And then I said, William Paul Young? He said, yes. I said, the William Paul Young? He said, well, I don't know about the the part, but I said, are you the dude that wrote like the best book that's been written in the last 500 years? And he said, well, I, I said, did you write the shack? And he said, that would be me. And I said, why in the world are you calling me? He said, the whole world wants to talk to you. So with that, we got into this conversation that went on because I had like bunches of questions and we had a fascinating conversation. I knew he was a brother from another mother the minute I talked to him or when I read the book and so we hung up and uh, and what had happened was Tim Brassell who's a friend of mine in Virginia had read The Shack and Tim's sort of like one of my lifelong or not lifelong but a long time friend and I guess you'd say disciple or whatever and he read The Shack and he's like this sounds like Baxter's theology so I wonder if Paul Young knows Baxter so I'll email Paul Young and ask him if he knows Baxter and, and I give him his phone number and tell him he needs to talk to him because he's got the theology that goes along with the shack. So that's the origin of the whole thing. I, and so anyway, I hung the phone up and I called Tim. And I said, man, you're not going to believe what just happened. So I told him. And so that was in like November. And I, that's that following spring, April or so, yeah, April 17th, 
uh, I was scheduled to speak at Tim's church or Bill Wynn's church up in that area. I said, you get on the phone right now and you call Paul and you invite him to come to that conference and you tell him he can take all day Friday and Friday night and just do whatever he wants to do. And I'll get up behind him and, and fill in the blanks theologically and historically and stuff like that. And I said, but bring him in on Wednesday and don't tell anybody he's there. Because I said, I want to spend, I want to, I want to hear his story. Because it's utterly, utterly fascinating how he'd come to see what he'd come to see in a completely different way than I did. And so uh, from that moment on, uh, we have been um, greatest of friends. And it is a, an absolute joy for me to be able to walk with a man like this who has been through so many trials and tribulations. Uh, and he's just my friend and brother. And it's fantastic. So in uh, the beginning of 2004, which is the 11th year, the beginning of the 11th year of my process of renovation of the shack, right? Because I use the shack as a metaphor for the heart and the soul of a human being. It's the house on the inside that people have helped us build. And a lot of us, we didn't get good help. And so it's not like a very habitable place. It's more like a shack. And what a lot of us do is we create a facade outside, you know, something, a piece of wood that we can paint as fast as we can when we pick up people's expectations. And, uh, and we end up being different things to different people because we can just paint the wood, different things as we, so, you know, what do you want me to be to you? I can do this, you know? What do you want me to be to you? I can do that too, right? And we, ended up, we end up living very divided lives. And at some point, you know, the facade has to come down. Well, that process for me was 11 years, starting uh, Jan uh, January 4th, 1994, and concluding at the end of 2004. And um, in a conclusion sense that the major renovation was done, and I knew it was done by the end of 2004, partly because it took Kim and me, Kim's my wife, it took us 11 years to heal. That's what was one of the markers. And um, because the 11 years that is represented in the shack by Mackenzie's weekend, right? But I didn't want to write an 11-year book for my kids. That 11 years was precipitated by a phone call from Kim in which she said, I'm waiting for you at your office and I know. And all the facade of my religious performance and, I mean, and serious performance. I was really trying to win the affection and the approval of God. So much so that I believed that the facade, if I could just paint it right and perform the requirements right, that the facade outside the shack would become the real boy. That's what I was hoping. And I've had to find out that God never loved the facade at all, but loved the wreck of the shack the whole time. And so... That call, what, what Kim knew, it was just like, I'm waiting for you at your office and I know. And what she knew was I was in a three-month affair with one of her best friends. That brought everything down. And I had to make the choice whether to face my wife or kill myself. Those, that was my choice. And um, because at that point, I was so sick of trying to start over. And, and Kim had really been a person who had intercepted my life in kind of a miraculous way 
And I had, I had married her, and she didn't know anything about the damage that was inside. I was really good at hiding. So now it's all out. So I have to decide. And I don't even know how I made it across town. And I pulled into the parking lot of the office that I, that I owned and ran and walked in, and uh, she took me apart. Now, Kim's from a very large Minnesota, North Dakota family. Right? These people don't know that you can be more than one thing. It just makes no sense to them. Right? And Kim and her five sisters are called the force. <laughs> right? So she took me apart. And after about the first four, I mean, she'd already taken the office apart. So she was just waiting, you know, for me. And after the first four hours, I said to her, you know, if we're going to do this, I need to tell you every secret that I have. And she said, bring it on, naively. And it, it took me the next four days to tell my wife all my secrets. Four days, like 10 to 12 hours a day. And by the end of those four days, Kim was destroyed. She let me stay in the house for two reasons. One was... She, knew, she believed, as furious as she was, that I'd hit the bottom. And the reason that she believed I'd hit the bottom were two things. Not once during the conversation had I ever pointed a finger at anybody else but myself. I was done. You know, and I, I have great sadnesses. Yeah, I had a minister father who beat the hell out of me growing up. Yeah, sexual abuse was a part of my childhood starting before I was five and... I went to boarding school when I was six, and the big boys came and molested the little boys. I had issues of multicultural not belonging. I had all that crap. Didn't matter. I owned this. And um, she believed I hit the bottom because I, I went to the yellow pages in the phone book when they had them. And I started with the A's, and I found Agape Youth and Family Services, a counseling service that specialized in abuse. And I called them up and made an appointment. So not only did I not point a finger at her, if I'd have pointed a finger at her, I, I, it would have been over, right? I, but I never even crossed my mind. I, w I was done. And I walked into... Uh, Agape Youth and Family Services, met a guy named Byron Keeler who pointed me to another man. He says, I think I've got the man for you to talk to, Scott Mitchell. And Scott became my friend, but he's the first man I sat in front of. He's a stranger out of the yellow pages. And I say, Scott, my life is over. I said, I don't, I don't know what to do. And for the first time in my life, I said these words. Can you help me? Can you help me? And Scott looks at me and he says, yep, but it's going to take a year and a half. I said, I'm in. He said, yeah. Everybody says they're in. When they're sitting where you are, you know, but everybody bails out after a couple months. They'll feel a little more in control again. They'll feel a little better about themselves. And right before the really hard stuff, they'll, they'll just bail out. 
And I said to Scott, you don't understand. I don't even trust myself enough to know when I'm done. So I'm not leaving until you tell me I'm done. Because I knew something. At this point, if I couldn't find some healing, there was no point in anything. I mean, I'm a, I'm a person who's been trying to pursue Jesus for 38 years. And my life is a wreck. There was this big disconnect between my ability to process information and be intellectual and rationalize and theological and my heart, which was just a wasteland. There was this divide that I couldn't, I couldn't bridge. And, uh, and I knew if I can't find some help, I'm done. And I'd been suicidal most of my life, but I'd always kept it at bay through one thing or another. And I said, I'm not leaving until you tell me I'm done because I couldn't heal myself. I, I've been trying for years by myself. I don't know about you, but we want God to heal us without anybody else finding out about it. Right? And we want extreme soul makeover, you know? Send me to Disney World and fix me by the time I get back, you know? And it's not like that. Human beings are much more intricately designed. And the process of healing is going to be a process. So we started working on my stuff. And every day I'd call Kim and tell her what we were working on. And every day she'd say the same thing. Yeah, right, whatever. And that was okay because I knew I couldn't heal her. I couldn't heal myself. And I thought, okay, this is the way it's going to be the rest of our lives. She is never going to believe one thing that actually changes. And why should she? Why should she? I destroyed her sense of everything that she thought was real. And it was a devastating loss to her. You know what kept Kim alive during this period of time? Mary Kay, her best friend, who walked with her once, twice, sometimes three times a day. So Kim could cuss and scream and yell and get out the anger so she didn't come back to the house and kill me. <laughs> and, um, and for two years, Mary Kay walked with her. And not once in two years did Mary Kay turn to Kim and say, you know, you should be past this by now. She just walked with her. So I started working on this, and I worked hard. And uh, Scott was right, it got really hard, really hard. It got to the place where it was like Kim was pounding on me every day. Because she still can't figure this out. How could a human being do this to another human being? Right? How could you do this to your kids? They have kids. How could you do it to their kids? These are kids that we've known since they were little. I've heard you speak. You say these great things over here and all this crap is going on underneath your, your world over here. How could you do this? Right? So she's pounding on me every day, pushing me to the edge of the cliff. And it's kind of like I got my back to the cliff and finally she, there was a point where it's like she spins me around and I'm looking down into the abyss and she says, there it is, deal with it. And I'm looking down there and I'm thinking, I don't know what to do. I mean, what am I supposed to do? Somehow go back to before I'm five years old and see if there's something real. How do I do that? What's not a defensive mechanism or a survival skill or something? And I'm looking down in the hole and it's just this mess. And I'm thinking, you know what? 
I've managed to pretty much hurt every single human being in my world. How do I know I'm not going to do it again? In that moment, all my hope left. It vanished. And I was done. Because I was obliterated. And I'm looking down the hole and my hope disappears. And I started planning a trip to Mexico because I didn't want, if anything, I didn't want my children to find my body. That's how, how serious it was. Well, two friends showed up. A guy named Kenny, who is a broken boy like me, but never hid the fact. He came off the streets, not out of the church. Kenny goes to Kim, unbeknownst to me at the time, and he says to Kim, I'm so sorry that you've had to come down from the mountain of normalcy to find out what some of us are like. He said, it's not fair. Here you are, so brutally betrayed. And now you're supposed to be the one that forgives. He said, that's not fair. He said, I don't know what to tell you, but I think Paul's doing the best he knows how right now. And I think, and these are the words he used, I think if you hit him one more time, metaphorically, <laughs> if you hit him, because I'm standing on the edge of that cliff, right? He doesn't know that. I haven't told him. He comes and talks to Kim. He says, I think if you hit him one more time, you're going to kill him. And Kim listened to Kenny and for a few days backed off. This is in the first nine months. This is about four or five months into my process with Scott. And she backed off. There was a friend of ours named Kitty and she came to me at the same time, unbeknownst to um, Kim, unbeknownst to Kenny. And Kitty says, so Paul, tell me where you are right now. And I describe what I just told you, being pummeled to the edge of this cliff, looking down in this cliff. And I tell her what I see, and I say, Kitty, you know, you know what I am? I'm a pile of dried up shit. And I'm terrified. I'm terrified that if this wind keeps blowing, there won't be anything left. Kitty says to me, Paul, there is a seed. A seed? I'm thinking a seed. There's a seed. And then I think, you know, a seed means something could grow. Something. Something alive. A seed. And I'm thinking, you know, I don't care how little this seed is, but if there is a seed, something could grow. And all my hope came back in this little seed. And then I thought, you know, seeds, they, they grow good in this kind of stuff. <laughs> that was the last day of my life I was ever suicidal because of a little seed worked hard. Scott, after nine months, says, you're done. He says, we've never had anybody work this hard and stay with it. And he knows because it was life or death, right? But it took Kim and I 11 years to heal. 
11 years to rework who God is, who am I, all of those basic questions. After the 11 years, we're sitting around, and we didn't make my adultery the new secret. Everybody in Kim's family knew. Everyone in the community knew. The beauty is that over the next number of years, my children never heard it first from anybody except me. Kind of a miracle. We're sitting around, and Kim in front of me says to a group of friends, she says, you know, I never thought I would ever say this. She said, you know, people used to say, well, Kim, someday you'll forgive. And I would say, you don't know me very well. And she said, I never thought I would ever say this. It was all worth it. She's not at all saying the destructive choices that we make in each other's lives are worth it. That stuff's just crap. It's wrong. What she is saying is that there's nothing so broken that God can't heal it. There's nothing so lost that he doesn't know where it is. There's nothing so dead that he can't grow something alive inside of it. 2005 clicks over. I turn 50. I'm one of the healthiest people that I know after all this. I don't have any secrets. I can't tell you how much easier it is to live a life with no secrets. We are as sick as the secrets we keep. And the reason we keep them is because we're terrified that if somebody finds out them, we will lose the little bits of light and affection and grace that we manage to scrabble together by our performance. But when somebody offers us kindness and grace, we don't believe them because they don't know the secrets. And we're totally trapped by them. And I don't have any. There's nothing in my world that my kids or my wife or my friends don't know. I don't have any addictions. I'm not talking just pornography and all the normal crappy stuff that comes along with these. I'm talking the gold-chained ones too, like pleasing my dad like doing something significant for God. Now there's a gold-chained addiction. Like doing something significant, you know. 2005 clicks over and I finally, this is the year I turned 50, I finally feel healthy enough as a human being to do something that Kim has been asking me for about four years. Would you please someday just as a gift for our six children. Would you write them a gift and put in one place how you think because you think outside the box? And in 2005, as a gift for Christmas because we had nothing, we lost everything financially in 2004. As a gift for Christmas, I wrote a story and I made 15 copies and I was able to make 15 copies because some man I didn't know got a nudge of the Holy Spirit and in the middle of the night slipped five $20 bills in an envelope under my door. 
And it gave me enough money to go down and print the first 15 copies of the shack. And the first 15 copies of the shack did everything that I ever wanted this book to do. I'm trying to tell my kids, look, I grew up with the God of my evangelical fundamental Protestant heritage who I no longer believes exists. But let me tell you about the God who showed up, who came out of the door of the shack, wrapped me up, this stranger in an embrace of affection that was so relentless, I didn't have the power to change it. That is the love that we are pursued by to the praise of his glory. Amen. You've been listening to the New Canaan Society podcast for the Franklin, Tennessee chapter. Remember to check out Harrington Interactive Media and get your book to print. They edit, package, and help you put your book on Amazon if you're an author, organization, or a publisher. 